Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm at Prigo at a festival with a bag of MDMA. Well, we both took a great big dab and went to greet the day. Now I warn you, this shit tastes foul when you put it in your gob. But try to swallow all of it, it'll knock your fucking socks off. So the two of us were wired and the festival's in flow. We wandered round and watched some bands smiling as we go. Testing, testing, you're listening to Life in the Stocks with Matt Stocks. Oh, mate, why didn't you get into voiceover work? <laughs> There's still time. You've got an amazing voice. <laughs> And I'll do me, do myself, one, two, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely stuff. Yeah, thanks for that, mate. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this. Yeah, no problem. Featuring the likes of Billy Bragg, Banksy, and the Cookie Monster. What a lineup. <laughs> <laughs> so the last time we saw each other was in the middle of the Caribbean Ocean. It was. On the Floggy Molly Cruise. Uh, how many years have you done that now? Uh, I've done them all. You've done uh, every five, every yeah, single one. Exactly that. Mate. Yeah. The first one I was, I was kind of blagged it a little bit. The first one, um, I wasn't really supposed to be on it. Um, I certainly wasn't on the poster, right? But then I was. Sort <laughs> so of, you definitely weren't on it. <laughs> well, well, I was. It was agreed late night in a bar in New Orleans, and uh, and then the lineup come out, and I wasn't on it, and I kind of hit up Nathan and was like, I thought I was going to be on the cruise. And he was like, yeah, no, we'll sort you out. You know, we'll sort you out. And I was like, but and with gigs? forgotten that you'd had that conversation uh, in the bar. No, I think it had just, you know, it's quite a big machine, isn't yeah. it? Um, but he was like, look, we've got your gigs. Like, you, you're good to go, basically. Just come on down. We won't be able to put you on the post up, but like, you, you'll have gigs. And yeah, I had like four or five gigs that first year. And uh, I just, 
you know, couldn't believe my luck of being there and just went for it. Basically, I turned up, you know, for, in in all the garms, like cheap sunglasses, my, you know, like Hawaiian shirt, Bermuda shorts, no shoes. And uh, <laughs> and I was, do, I was doing like cabin because we, we, I was on tour kind of doing like house concerts in the States with like a tip jar playing in people's living rooms and stuff like that. And I sort of took that mentality on the boat and I was like, I put a big poster up beans on toast gig in your cabin and i was like running around non-stop just doing gigs and it's like you know playing gigs on top of the water slide and all this you know just making up songs about a cruise and somehow you know whatever we did that first year sort of turned into the mascot of, of it because i don't think when they started they didn't know whether it was going to be a thing like an annual event yeah it was one-off. like a one-off thing and it was like if it goes well and it was such a incredible kind of like monumental weekend that you know, two days. They used their their ex manager used to run it. He called me up uh, like two days afterwards, and he was like, "Right, it was such a success. We're basically booking the next one now. We're in, we want to announce the lineup next week." I was like, "Well, are you calling me?" You know, and he's like, "What I want to do is once I get the lineup, I'm gonna send it to you. You put all your garments back on and write a song announcing next year's lineup." And I was like. Am I on next year's time? <laughs> yeah. This time, can yeah. I get on that poster? And he's poster? like, you're on it every year. And somehow it's just like everybody stayed true to that. Because the first three years, there was a lot of the same bands. And then they kind of like had this big, not clear out, but it was like, you know, you don't want the same. Most festivals don't have the same bands playing year in, year out. And I've always managed to dodge that rule. I don't know whether it's that I'm not viewed as a real band or whatever, but like Secret Garden Party, I played that festival 15 years running. 15 yeah oh no sorry they ran for they ran for 15 didn't they and i played 12 yeah same time slot same stage year in year out and it'd be like you know you know every other band like i said it's just a done thing at festivals isn't it glastonbury don't i imagine as well glastonbury i mean glastonbury's different because you know i think a lot of people play there every year because right. there's so many different sort of like aspects to it and you know but but yeah i mean you know i've been going to glastonbury since i was 16 and i haven't missed one you know, and I've been playing since since I started Beans on Toast, basically, like 2007, 2008. And I've played every year since then. You know, like how legit, for years and years, I'd just be on every chalkboard. You know, I wouldn't, again, wouldn't make it to the lineup, but it would be, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a gig. Um, there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. I guess let's begin with the the childhood. The early years. The, my childhood? Your childhood. The, okay, yeah, the okay. childhood. Your parents, um, what did they do for a living? What did my parents do for a living? My dad was um, a burglar alarm engineer, uh, which That's is, a niche trade, right? Or, um, or is it yeah, more it's common kind than you of would like, think? It's kind of like grafting trade, isn't it? You know, like ladders on top of the sort of estate car, you know, and just it used to do mainly houses and stuff. So it'd just be like, you know, like, certainly through the 80s and 90s it was quite you know trendy is the wrong word but certainly you know like everyone you'd have like a bell cover outside your house when you're sort of security systems basically which is i guess over years have turned more into sort of cctv and whatnot but my dad worked the same job i don't know how many years it was but you know he worked it from when he was 15 16 until he retired a few years back well, wow, um, so fresh out of school, literally all the way up until retirement. I'm not even sure if my old man went to school, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure he's. He I'm sure, he, lad, I'm sure he? he popped up in there from time to time. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, he, you know, he worked. He worked that same, and it was, you know, it was it was grafting. He worked sort of either on building sites or in, in people's houses, basically, and it was always up and out, you know, up in the morning and out at them. 
Is that our house coming in or next door? Okay. Oh, maybe I left it off the latch. That's secure, isn't it? <laughs> Come on in. Come on in. <laughs> there we go. I thought that was my housemate coming over. Then I was like, no, they're not coming in here. Sorry, mate. Carry on. Sorry. So that was your dad. What was your mum doing? My mum was a swimming teacher, basically. Worked at the swimming pool. Braintree Riverside Swimming Pool. Um, I mean, she did a few other bits and bobs over the years. She did a, little, a spell as a driving instructor, which uh, she did that when I was 17 and I didn't learn to drive till I was 33, which is weird. I'm 33 and I still don't know how to drive. Do it. So there's there's still time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was a late comer to the driving thing. But now, you know, like once I did, I mean, I'm, I, it's no regrets. I did a, I did a lot of great passengering <laughs> uh, up to the point. But I actually bought, I actually bought a car because I needed to get around, but I couldn't drive it. So uh, only an idiot. Did you take a test because you knew you were going to be a father? Did, no, and you didn't no, it was years before, could, a few it was, years before, it was, it was before that. that. Yeah, yeah, it was a few years. It was actually because it was I was doing so many gigs, and I knew enough people that would drive me to gigs or festivals or whatnot uh, that could drive but didn't have a car because everyone lived in London. So I was like, sod it, like in, including my wife, you know, or my girlfriend at the time, my wife. I was like, well, I, if I buy a car, I just put everyone else on the insurance. And then, you know, if I need, if I, when people say, oh, I haven't got a car, so you can drive me in my car. I bought this wicked Fiesta for like, you know, 500 quid. And, uh, and then I was like, because it wasn't like I didn't have a license. I literally didn't even know how to start the thing. Yeah. I couldn't park it. I couldn't move it across the road. And I was just like, what sort of idiot owns, owns a car and I can't drive? And can't turn it on. Yeah, can't drive. <laughs> so I, so I, I learned just about as well. I got 14 minors. Did you? Uh, you're allowed 15 yeah, minors. Yeah. Well, I, I took a test and I failed. I got two minors. Right. Two, but, no, but one major. Oh, right. Okay. Because the guy was like, you're well above the standard that we require for usual drivers. Like, you're an incredible driver. Felt really safe with you in the car. Really competent. But you hesitated at the roundabout, so I'm going to have to fail you. I was like, why would you tell me all that? Oh, Build my me word. Up to, it was the opposite. You, you don't like my story. He's, my guy said, unfortunately, you got you've by passed. hairline, did yeah, you? Yeah, he unfortunately. said, unfortunately, you passed. He said, we have to draw a line somewhere. He said, I've never really seen anybody do it. He said, he, he said I reckon if you was in the car for one more minute, I could have failed you. Brilliant. But he was like, you know, we draw a line somewhere. You're just inside of it. I'd, you know, I'd suggest you get, you do another couple of lessons before you go out. But, he, but you know, here's your license here's, stamp. Go on, kid. Here's your license, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah. So, were they musical? Were they into music? Was it a musical so household? Probably not. I mean, it, my parents. And were you switched on to music? My at a parents young age? are fans. I think is probably the easiest way. My mum was like, uh, you know, they both grew up in London in the sixties, basically. And my mum was, uh, you know, a Beatle maniac. Was she like full on? They did like ten years ago or something. They did like a, a big BBC sort of 20 part documentary series about the Beatles or whatever. But my mum was in it like six times, just the back of just her from head. Archive footage. Or just, yeah, 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 just the back of her head or running through. Like she was in the, they didn't really do music videos as such there, but the classic uh, Hey Jude, I think it's the Hey Jude one where they're all like, sat around my mum, like the back of my mum's head's in that. She said, they were just hanging around outside Abbey Road and like a van pulled up. It's like, get in. And they'd all sort of shimmy off. Like another classic one from mum was. Um, what an exciting time. Yeah, she got she got suspended from school actually, um, where her and her mate both bunked off to when the Beatles first come back from their first US tour or whatever, like welcoming them back at the airport. And then the next day, her and her mate went into school, and I was like, "Where were you?" They both handed in sick notes, and I was like, "You sure you're sick? Because if you know you're lying and you get found out, you get in big trouble. Hundred percent, definitely sick." And uh, then they pulled out the local newspaper, and I was both on the front <laughs> front page waving, waving in. them, yeah. 
Welcome yeah, fan, home, boys. Fans, welcome to Beatles home. <laughs> they both got suspended. Yeah. Brilliant. So she uh, was a true kind of like yeah, pop and, music and, fanatic. You know, and, and is today, you know, like, she's got, not pop music fanatic, Beatles fanatic. Just Beatles. Just the Beatles. Right. I mean, you know, and with that comes a love for other music. But, you know, to this day on their living room wall, you know, my mum's got a huge, you know, picture, painting of John Lennon. And, yeah, you know, she was a, a diehard Beatles fan. My dad also a big country and Western fan. Um, I was raised on a lot of kind of really cheesy 80s country. Like there was obviously kind of Johnny Cash and John Prine and the kind of legit stuff. Um, but then, you know, just because of the time that it was. was Stevie also, Ray Vaughan. And- yeah, Randy Travis was right, the yeah, big, yeah. Was big hero in our house. We used to call my dad's car the Randy Mobile. <laughs> Which, you know, comes it just sounds weird now. I think there was something at that time about tradesmen, particularly in the south of England, being really into American country music. It was kind of a weird... Yeah, you can see, and you can see the connection as well, yeah. isn't it? Like, they're, um, that, that sort of, yeah, sort of hard living, hard drinking and all that. Yeah, but, um, hard working. Yeah, it was like, and, and, and from that, I completely, you know, I loved, I really, really loved country. And I, I actually, through my sort of classic teenage years, I, I thought that I hated it. But I come, you know, turn around and come back to, I was still to this day, I probably listen to more kind of folk and country than I do much else, you know, now. Um, and that took me a while to realise that through my kind of, you know, in, like I said, my teenage years, listening to Wu-Tang and whatnot. But um, yeah, they were both diehard and they had like, they it was also quite on top of things, like they probably regret it now, but. Again, through the when when CDs kicked in, they sold their record collection and rebought CDs that they wanted, and had one of them classic again classic nineties CD holders in the middle of the living room, and it was like the living room was filled with CDs, and like there was, and it wasn't just them things. It was like my dad was always pretty good with. Like I remember um, watching the Lost Boys, the film, of course, and, yeah. uh, great and movie, the, and uh, Break on Through is like the kind of intro song. I was like. Just, oh, I quite like that song. That song, what's that? And my dad was like pretty quick to stick the Doors, uh, Best of Doors double CD compilation in my hand, which happened to go hand in hand with when I just started smoking weed. And Perfect. Lo, lo and behold. You yeah, are breaking on uh, through. Yeah, exactly. Lo and behold. I thought I was fucking Jim Morrison. Yeah, the Doors um, of Perception have been opened. I'm it, going it, in. It literally was like that. And I got completely obsessed with, uh, with Jim Morrison. I remember being in um, at school, secondary school, I was like, so I I used to listen to these like the light live Doors albums of a night, and I'd later and I kind of memorized half of the kind of lions in the street and roaming dogs in heat, but all this sort of like really sort of boombastic poetry. And I was sort of mumbling one to myself during like form period or whatever. And my teacher was like, "Anything you want to share with the class, Jay?" And I was like, "Yes." Stood up on top of the desk <laughs> and did a like five minute long sort of well, you know, two minute long. Jim Morrison, yeah, yeah, Jim Morrison, and then just finished and sat back down. And she was like, okay, good, and just carried on. <laughs> and I was, so I was like, you, called a you asked, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you asked. So you said that, yeah, dad was always good for having a good record collection to, you know, if I asked for stuff or paid, paid attention. But didn't nobody played instruments in the house? But, but at saying that, at the same time, the minute that I showed any interest in it, I was like, you know, maybe I play guitar. But dad, within his trade, he used to like, I don't want to get the guy in trouble, but I don't know. we don't he, need to name names. He could make he could make stuff appear. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he uh, knows somebody. You know somebody. Yeah, you yeah. Somebody. Swap it for something, you know. <laughs> like, and uh, and yeah, and you know, like I got the the classic. You know, I think it started with like a sort of uh, nylon strung acoustic guitar, and then the classic like encore 
strat with your practice amp. Yep. Kind of, you're sort of Argos, sort of like off, <laughs> off your trot sort of uh, setup. And that, you know, as soon as I uh, showed any interest in it, they was, you know, instant, as much as they didn't play anything. You know, my dad plays a bit of ukulele now, but they were sort of like right behind me. Yeah. How old were you then when you got the first guitar and started playing and uh, messing about? I'm probably, si I was 16. I remember we'd, we'd uh, and I kind of got it around the wrong way a little bit in the fact that we was in secondary school and we just, I just told him, we formed a band basically. My mate Dave and mate John, and we was like, let's form a band. And we come up with a name and, you know, and we sort of wrote the band name. We're like graffitied all over the school and was like, yeah, you know, this is the band. We just, and everyone just sort of believed us. And then it was like, right, what are we going to do? What are you we're gonna, gonna write do some now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was like who's gonna do oh, what? You've got to actually do that. To it was about like it, who's who's yeah. gonna do what? And uh, so then, and again, even my parents then we used to live on a kind of you know semi-detached sort of suburban house in Essex. And my parents were like, uh, I was like, we want to start a band. And Dave got a drum kit, and he was like, right, we're gonna do this. And my parents were like, well, you could just like practice in the dining room. Brilliant. Not even like, and they was like, we're garage. going away next weekend, and you could just like, why don't you just practice in the dining room? And it was like. You know, I wouldn't let anybody practice it if I had a dining room. <laughs> yeah. But I would, there's no so way happy. I'd let anyone play a drum kit in my house, you know, like, and, the, you know, of the neighbours all went wild and they was like, well, you know, like, they're kids, you know, they want to start a band, let them, let them do it. So they you were know? super encouraging right out the gate. Obviously, yeah. And always, have they always been as well by your side with the, the career? and Yeah, yeah. I mean, they come to as many beans as I let them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mean, there has to come a time where you draw the line. Uh, come on, guys. Well, well, I mean, I say that in jest, but they, they come they come to enough. I mean, they was on the cruise. Were they really? Yeah. I didn't meet them on the cruise, did I? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, again, they look I didn't realise they were on there. Yeah, yeah, they came Brilliant. on the, I mean, I've taken them there for a couple of years because that's, you know, it's it, kind of perfect. It's sort of double whammy, isn't it? It's sort of old and uh, yeah, old yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like sort of concerts. But yeah, they came to Glasgow last year and uh, they'll generally come to, you know, certainly the London show, if not a couple of the shows when I tour. So... Yeah, right, yeah, fully behind it. When here's what I want to get into then. When did you start messing about with the uh, you know, the kind of the mind altering substances? You say you're getting into Jim Morrison, weeds there. Is Pretty soon after. I, I kind of flew through the uh um the, the the list pretty quickly. It was like I liked, you know, I was sort of presumed everything was bad and then it was like I had a spliff. Really liked smoking weed from from the off. And we used to, you know, without sort of promoting recreational drugs where we smoke a fucking lot of it you know we used to like cut plastic bottles in half and you know do lungs yeah like three or four before school lungs when we was buckets. 50 yeah lungs and buckets we do them at lunchtime we do them before science you know like mm -hmm. and i was like i don't know what I'd, I'd still smoke a fair bit of weed but i don't know what would happen if i did like a lung now let alone <laughs> like four or five i generally i very rarely smoke weed and go out in public yeah so like the idea of sort of doing that and one thinking that no one knew what was going on mm -hmm. um and uh, yeah it's sort of turning up at school and just and you know pretty much you know for a lot of that time you know i'd, I'd smoke almost every day pink eyes reeking of weed yeah yeah slightly awkward yeah, and giggling yeah, yeah. and stuff like that like, i mean it's all the all the signs must have been there but at the time i thought you know i thought no one knew but i don't know from there once i was like well everyone was wrong about that you know what else is there i don't know there was a, like, a fair bit of speed going around back then i mean it wasn't and then i guess at uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, so the first trip I took, if you want to get, because you could do a whole podcast about... Well, I definitely want to get into it. 
Um, so the first one of the guys that we used to get uh, weed from was just like yeah which sounds really obvious but he was like quite a trusted guy and he was like look it, you know it's your it's theirs if you want it and sold us his acid and we was like we made a pact me and my four mates and we was like well look we'll do it now to see how it is but he, no matter how good it is we won't keep like, let's make sure we don't do it next Friday or whatever, because I don't, we sort of, the person that sold it to us explained that, you know, this wasn't anything to fuck around with. And we, I think I kind of knew that anyway. And it was like, we, you know, we cleared a night. We all said we were sleeping around different people's houses. We made sure that there was nothing going on. And we had this sort of like, you know, spirals in the sky, you know, like faces coming out the front of my t-shirt, like premonitions, like, the whole world turned purple. Like I fell in love with a mug. I, I didn't know it was a mug because I couldn't see the handle and I thought it was like this ceramic pot that was like one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. And I tried to show it to someone else and it was, I saw the handle and I was like, it's just a mug, man. <laughs> it's just a mug. I've been looking at it for like 20 minutes. You know, it's got a real kind of, again, a kind of classic sort of acid experience, I guess. And, and, and it was beautiful. There wasn't any darkness or paranoia. It was just all love, no, all good. It was, it was I, obviously intense, but it was all Yeah, I positive. mean, it, it, weirdly, the next morning I got caught for smoking weed. I, felt, I, I almost had this thing where it's like, I felt like whenever I pushed the boundary more, I got caught for what I did last time. Um, and uh, Were your so, parents mortified when they found out that you'd smoke weed? I got in a lot of trouble at school. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it, wasn't, it, it wasn't ideal. Um were you but, a studious kid? Did you get on well in like the, the lessons in the classroom? Yeah, or? it was fine. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the thing at school was uh, someone rung up the school and said, and basically said that me and my mates were drug dealers, which we weren't. I mean, at, at the same time, I guess that if you came to us and said, I want to come to the bottom of the field and smoke a lung, we probably would have given you one, you know, for the inquisitive people. But if we felt that was happening. So some nerd so, basically grasped you up. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Or someone, <laughs> or again, it would have been fucking, you know, painstakingly obvious yeah. to anyone that was actually knew what I was looking for. But anyway, they did this, they kind of like did like a raid in the school one day when it was like, <laughs> we was all pulled in. And me and one of my other mates were the only people that didn't have anything on us. Because you so, smoked it all. Well, just we just it was just the luck of the draw, right? Forgive the pun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, the they the, the headmaster then just decided that we must have been the ringleaders running the whole thing and took it upon himself to be able to then call my even though I actually did nothing and he caught me with nothing. He was like, "Well, no, you know, I'm still going to ring." your mum and dad and telling me you're a drug dealer. I was like, what? You know, and it was like, not, not great. I mean, no, no one was as, as kind of, you know, no one was to hear that cool. Let me ask you this, because I had a, not exactly the same, but a similar experience here or there at school. And I very early on began to distrust and I guess reject authority. Not in an angry, I'm pissed off at the world kind of a way, but, I think I was shown very early on that it's a rigged game and that there's inherent hypocrisy that comes with institutions like schools. And I mean, I could tell I didn't like Mr. Davidson from the way he looked. Yeah. You know, I didn't need to, you know, didn't need to. That proved it by the way he acted. But, did that you know, incident in any way politicize I, you or? No, I don't think so. No, I didn't really. I just thought, you know, I just thought it was. It, I mean, I. 
I guess if I was headmaster of school and there was a kid turning up stone, that stoned every day and giving out the end of the field, <laughs> I'd probably enough. do something about it as well. You know, I'd probably, I'd probably ring his parents. It was just the way that it was, it was just kind of annoying that he didn't catch me with anything on it, but he still made the call. And then, you know, you know, it wasn't the end of the world, but it was like, and again, you know, what do you say to even if, you, you know, you don't want to say to your kid, yeah, great, go out, you know, mm -hmm. go to school and smoke weed. You know, I, I also know kids at school that's parents did do that. And that was, you know, terribly sad. I thought, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, it's a societal thing, isn't it? Because no one will talk about it because it's like drugs are bad. And they, certainly they was, it was less like, sorry, more so then than, yeah. than it is yeah, now. Yeah. I think the conversations sort of happened a bit more. But yes, yeah, so I did. We did that one acid anyway. And then I didn't touch that stuff again for, you know, like six seven years or whatever until you know i was sort of away from home and and, and this and the other and then i used to go raving a lot you know so got into pills through that and uh oh you know looking back now it's all pretty cliched stuff um it was the 90s but, man yeah but i was yeah. i mean cliche or not it you know those was yeah super special times you know like and i, I mean i gave up all chemical drugs God, it must be like five or six years ago now. Um, but I was still... that easy enough? Was that a decision that you made lightly? Was it just like I'm done with it? Yeah, it's it was time. A I mean, it was the the main the the kind of it, I found it really easy. I, um, but it was the main thing was physical. I used to talk like this. I used to be the guy with a fucked up voice, and uh, and it just got worse and worse. And that was a combination of you know smoking and yeah. you know. At the time I was smoking, I was doing loads of coke. So, I'd, you know, I'd do, I'd like stand it, going out at night and chatting re in really loud places, smoking. It was just like everything I did, you know, and then I did gigs. Blah, blah. Everything I did was just like ruining my voice. And it was like one, uh, you know, after Glasto. I mean, it's all in the book. I sort of promised myself I, I don't retell the stories from the book. But um, it was basically kind of... We can go about it in a roundabout way. Yeah. I, 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 I fresh. I, I couldn't talk. Basically, my voice stopped. You know, it, one day it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it just croaked out. And it was a huge lump appeared in my throat. I thought, and I was like, you know, I'm going to die. It's over, yeah. Yeah, this is it. You know, like, and, and you know, what sympathy would I get from anywhere? Mm -hmm. You know, like all my songs, but hey, I love smoking, fuck, 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 all this shit. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, man. And I was just, and I was like, right, I'm going to have to see a doctor. I didn't even, I hadn't, didn't even know how to see a doctor. I didn't have like an NHS number or wasn't registered anywhere and whatnot. So going through the process of doing that, I kind of self-diagnosed myself. And I was like, what the hell is the doctor going to say if I'm like, look, I'm smoking 30 fags a day. I'm doing loads of gack and, you know, like I'm up all like like all weekend chatting shit. It's like, right, okay. And I had, it just, things are just, gigs had just started picking up for me, for Beans on Toast. I'd been doing it for a long time, but I had like a summer full of festivals ahead. Like more than I'd ever done, and like the ones that were paying money and stuff, it was like it definitely felt a shift in that. And you didn't want to fucking. Well, I was like, I can't, I can't talk. I can't up, talk. Yeah. So it was like it became. It's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to take drugs or do you want to be a singer? Basically, and I stopped. I didn't. Tell, I told my wife. I didn't tell anyone else for a week. I did one week. I didn't smoke any cigarettes. You know, I just went like everything stopped, and uh, just week, quietly locked it down. Yeah, yeah. and a week later. My voice was better than it had been for three years. And it was like, whoa, you know, and no one else could have heard it that day when I played the gig. The next gig was a gig at Blissfield and uh, no one else would have heard it. But I felt so much freedom singing that. And it was like, it was clear as day, you know, and since then I ain't touched any of it. 
Like it was just like okay, and it was it got sort of got better. You know, it, the more I waited, it got better and better and easier and easier. And I think giving up stuff's hard, especially if it's stuff like that and it's like built in with your kind of, you know, going out and you kind of just how you're used to kind of like your like lifestyle, your social what, activity, like, yeah. your professional career, yeah. all of it. Yeah. So if it's if it's linked in with that, um, you know, it's it, it becomes harder. But normally you don't get anything back. But I got my fucking voice back. So it was, and I think I've done it for maybe like three or four months. I, I knew I was going to still drink, you know, I've got a beer here now and I still smoke a bit of weed for a bit of pipe, through pipe. Or so whatever. you don't use tobacco in splits or anything like no, that? I, no, well, the so initially I was like, right, you know, once, and then I was like, I'm still, I knew I was still going to want to smoke weed. So I was like, all right, I'll just, I didn't feel the want for a cigarette at all. And I was like, but I'll just, there was someone was passing the spliff around and I was like, yeah, I'll just have a bit. Two tokes, next morning, wake up. And it was really? back. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. And it took just as long to, for it to get better. Like, off, off, through that, it was like, oh, man. So then it was really like, right, I'm not going near tobacco. And that was for years. I don't think I touched tobacco for maybe two or three years. Now I can because it's like, you know, back to normal, really. And so it's like now if I, you know, if there's a spliff going around, I can smoke a little bit of it. If I'm at home, I'll generally have a pipe instead or, you know, like I did try and get into all that electric sort of vape the nonsense. Vape. But last thing I need is another thing to charge, especially if I'm stoned. Like didn't need that at all. And with so. them, because you can do them inside, I've found that a lot of people I've spoken to tend to do a lot more of it. Because right, you can okay. sit there and yeah, just yeah, quietly, just certainly get away with it. I'm on day, this is day two for me now, of trying to give up smoking for the God knows what time. Right. Um, I'm doing dry January, and for the first two weeks of this month, I have been smoking still because I was like, I can't, because I'm doing the Veganuary thing as well. Right, so okay. I'm like, I can't not drink, not have like cheese and dairy and things like this that I'm used to. And, and so I did two weeks of still smoking. Okay. But what, what was happening was I was as feeling... As a wind down. As a wind down. And I was feeling great in my head. I was feeling really clear in my body. I was feeling really good. But there's still obviously that part around your lungs where you're just like... Uh, uh, uh. Right. And so I'm waking up after just just smoking and feeling like shit, despite the fact that there's no alcohol in my system. right. And I was like, right. just smoking alone. Because obviously when you're drinking and doing all the other stuff, as you say as well, you don't really realise the impact that just the fags are having. I think they're, just got, they're the worst part. one as well, and especially because you get it like... There's, no, nothing you know, mental from yeah, exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. There's no high a, yeah, or like, Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It feels buzz. like the most... And I like with smoking, that is, you know, I, it, it was a real turnaround for me as far as... like I got a song off my first record called Fuck the Smoking Band. You yeah, know, I, when, yeah, I remember. When the smoking band come in, I was, you know, I was working in the pub trade, and I was a heavy smoker and I was just like, I, I saw it as like a human right. And now I tour in Germany and a lot of times they still smoke inside and it's killing me. Like, so I, have to, and I think because a lot of people know that song and they're like, hey, in Germany, we can still smoke inside. And everyone's making a thing about it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, man, they no. played the song, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally. They've all got like 20 I had to get, I had to get a promoter to put the put posters up being like, please, like, we, we need to be a non-smoker venue tonight. And, uh, and you know, huge. And I, you know, Total 180 turnaround, yeah. yeah. 100%. And I also, yeah, I find fags so pointless now. Where it's like I said, yeah, there's no higher. It's like, why? I mean, the, how um, easy did you find them to kick? Easy. Like really? I said, well, it was you just, just like, done and there was and just no it. question in my mind. It was just like, that's the end of that. And, you know, and especially like, I think because it was like lumped in with, you know, I was definitely, if I was going to miss anything, it was probably going to be like a line of gack over it, you know, like a, a cigarette. But it was just like, it's it's all gone. 
And, and do, you, do you ever miss the chemicals at all? No, no? not at all. Like, and it's the same with anything. Like, the, the longer it is, the less yeah. you want it. I sort of thought that maybe, like, uh, you know, like, after uh, yeah, on five years, I'll kind of treat myself to, like, an <laughs> yeah. eat a festival. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, even just yeah. the thought of it, it's like, I'm just not interested yeah. anymore. And, I, and, and I, I never will. I know that. You know, I know that now. It's like, I know, and there's an element of me having sort of, you know, Tick that box, you know, a big fat marker. I like, definitely had, had been there, fun, done got that. away with it, yeah, as well. Like, so well, that's the other thing, isn't it? Is it's a pretty dangerous thing to be messing around with. And once you get to a stage in life where it's the norm to just be boshing back a couple of grams in a night, then from there it's only going to get worse, isn't it? And it's, I mean, there's never, no one's ever really thought that Coke makes someone better unless it's the person taking it, of course. <laughs> In the moment when you're on it, yeah. Then the next uh, day, you're like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. Did you do a lot of gigs out your mind? Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots, yeah, lots yeah. of festivals. And, any like... spring to mind that are particularly Secret either Garden Party, shameful which... or hilarious? Well, well, I mean, I feel like I can speak most openly about Secret Garden Party because one, it was such a hedonistic place, and two, because it's now it's now over. There's yeah, no chance it, of not being yeah, there exactly. Or, right, or yeah, or that it's. <laughs> I mean, I used to do drugs on stage at Secret Garden Party. I remember what, just I get out a bump and start well, I, I, doing I, I, keys. Once or... I was just like, has any? Right, it was like early days of me playing festivals, and I was just like, has anybody? out there going to drugs that I can take and various people put their hands up and I was like I sort of turned it into like a, a game I was like come on up and we people formed a little queue it was like six people and it was like what's your name where are you from what have you got and I just sort of bushed everything and it was like it actually looked really set up the woman at the end there was like a sort of old really old sort of haggled wrinkled woman with a little like a like a shot glass but full of some kind of I don't know sort of like something that was well out of my, my interest in and I was just like what is that and so I was like okay and that's where we draw the line and she just sort of zipped it and went back and then that was <laughs> yeah, that was sort of cracked on with that. and how long was you set did you feel everything taking hold of you as you were playing yeah for very sure. much yeah. like, and I'd all, I mean again I'd always do the Sunday and see the guard party and I, for a long long time run I'd always do the straight through crew like where I'd go all night what and Friday, then, Saturday, straight? No, Saturday. no, but just do all Saturday night and right. then all Sunday daytime. And I play at three o'clock on Sunday, which should be, you know, like, and, you know, there's an element of, wow, that sounds stupid, but not if you know your crowd. You know, I was, you know, like, and I'd seen half the people that had come, I'd seen, you know, like, throughout the course of the night anyway. And yeah, everybody yeah, knew yeah. the deal. <laughs> like, and uh, so, yeah, they'd, you know, I did some of them, which I, you know, looking back, I don't know how good they were, but no, actually I do. They were entertaining. They were, you know, and it was like, the songs are simple enough, you know, and I can sort of, you know, I also, you know, was knew how to play hammered. I definitely did somewhere I was too hammered, but generally that would be through booze. Yeah. If I've, if I've, if I've sort of like wrecked a gig, which I, I, I can only really think of a small handful, um, you know, off of the long list of gigs that I've played. What's I the would, what's the biggest car crash that that springs to mind? Islington Assembly Halls. Uh, that's a headline gig for head, you as well, for my it? own. Yeah, yeah, did a wicked tour. Toured with a, a band called Truck Stop Honeymoon, who were like my backing band. We made this kind of country record in Kansas, and brought them over. The tour was phenomenal. Like real, real step up for the musicianship for me with the people I was playing with, and then we the the way the tour was booked. We toured and then we had three days off and then we did the London show because I guess it was the only day that the venue could work it or whatever. We had three days off and then did the London, turned up for the London show and everything just happened too easy. You know, we just driven around the corner and it was like sound check was done. It was like 
two o'clock in the afternoon still or something. And you're like, not in tour mode because yeah, you've been at home like, for a I've while. Yeah, it was like, I've just so been at home. And it, was, I, it started to feel like we've got to recreate something that's just happened. I remember thinking that. I was like, it feels like it's ended and we're like recreating something that, that had happened. And I, I don't know. I don't know what how I got so pissed. But I remember, because I, I'll come walking on with a bottle of Jack Daniels in your hand, which... If you're hammered and you do that, it's a bad look anyway. <laughs> um, I mean, if you kind of, if the, I don't know, if the gig's all right and you do that, it's fine. But I remember, I remember the second song singing the first verse for the second time. And I was like, how pissed am I? And then I kind of blacked out. And uh, I just had, I woke up the next day with just flashes of... Uh, oh, God, isn't that the worst? Of what went down. You're yeah, trying to piece and together I, uh, the night, the shame, the yeah. terror. And it was like, none of... And I had... To, I, I, it turns out the main, the kind of, like, that the feeling... I think I'd also, we'd gone out afterwards and I'd somehow got, gone home without my wife, left her in the pub, which is bad. <laughs> Again, so yeah. unlike me. That sort of says exactly sort of where I was that night and I wasn't in Islington. Um and yeah, I mean, the I heard sort of the first person I rung was Bobby, who was playing in the band, and I was like, I can't even remember last night. And he was like, No, I'm not surprised. And I was like, How so was he, it? He wasn't as mashed as you then. No, was, no, no, not. No. So it was just, it was just me. It was, right. I think it might have even been quite an early gig. It wasn't even. There's there's one thing being hammered on a Sunday at a festival and everyone's way, but it's quite a posh uh, venue as well. I know Isn't the venue well, Academy. Yeah. It's like really, really nice. Isn't and there was, hall. Yeah, sorry, yeah, it's yeah. Assembly Hall. It's like really, really nice. And there's me like sloshing around a bottle of JD and like clambering into the crowd. And it's like, I mean, Bob said, yeah, it, you know, you, you, it was, you bombed basically. What the hell? You know, like you was way too hammered. And someone else said, you know, like it, no one could have got away with it being that hammered, but you might have just done. But, <laughs> I knew in my heart that, I, that it was a bad one. I knew it was a bad one. Um, and that's, and the only other one I can think of is the show that I did in Leeds. And that was when um, it was at like a rehearsal studio a long, long time ago. And uh, I'd been there for like, it was like an all dayer and I'd been there all day mm-hmm. and the stage time kept changing. And by the oh, that's I the worst, in, isn't it? And I was just really hammered. And I, I don't know, just maybe I, it was, there was just like, there was loads of other noise going on and stuff. And I was just like, I was in, in all fairness, I was rude. And, you know, and I don't think, I, I don't, it's not a proud day for me either. But that's only two gigs and I've played thousands. <laughs> on the flip side, what are some gigs that you've done where you have been absolutely mashed that have gone just beautifully well when all the elements were just in place and you, well, because there's something to be said bits. for when you're like, maybe even on that second day, like you're saying, the all night crew, there's something to be said when you're, you're present and you're conscious and you're kind of in control. You're fucked and you're a little bit wobbly. Yeah. But you're right there in this pocket of control and it almost feels like you're floating on this kind of magic carpet. Oh, and it carpet feels like you're in, you know, certainly them, them old almost. days when we used to get, you know, like, when we, you know, we'd, we, I did a thing with a band of like my friend Johnny Manning and Fun Bobby for a while and our, our setup was we have to have more fun than the crowd. You know, like, and that was, you know, like, we have to be more hammered than the crowd as well. And we'd do some like, yeah. And that was like when you're, when you're playing at a party and everybody, you know, it's almost like we wasn't really trying to get more hammered. It was, you know, it was on the same level, you know? And I think that's what- You're trying a, to create a kind yeah, of- it's, And that's what, what a, a gig, you know, that's what a gig, a gig is, you know? And I guess Beans I Toast gigs have changed over, over the years, you know, uh, as, as sort of my how how hammered I get maybe you know and just sort of how they're how they're sort of pitched but 
A slightly more controlled affair these days. Yeah, I mean, not really. No? Um, I, maybe they haven't changed. It's just like, I, you know, I, I'm not as hounded. Certainly people come in different states. But now it used to be a bit more like, like some of the gigs would be real kind of like organised kind of car crash chaos. I guess because you've been going consistently for, you know, 12, 13 years as well, mm. that your audience has probably grown up with you. That I, that is something when people do bring that up, you know, I have I have and the kind of the the kind of easiest thing to draw upon from that with so at, at gigs back when I used to you know from when I wrote MDMA and MDMA was like the big tune, people would come up after the gig and everyone would talk about what drugs they're going to take and where they're going and where the party is and then off the album before this last one I had a song about the birth of my daughter and it'd be like you know after the gig everybody wanted to talk about oh we're having a baby or you know like we've just had a baby and blah blah oh the birth story was really similar to us because everyone would say about mdma oh my god it's exactly what happened with me and my girlfriend and then with magic this song about birth people were like oh my god it's exactly what happened with me and my girlfriend you know two songs of the same chords you know 10 years apart and it's like and i think they're a good way of sort of you know pinning the I guess, yeah, how my life has changed, but how, you know, like turning it into song and playing it to people is still very, very similar. And relative. Yeah. And and true. Yeah, and, and I'd love to think, you know, people have certainly messaged me and been like, yeah, you know, like I used to, you know, I used to get hammered back in the day and, you know, and now I'm raising my family and, you know, yeah, you've been with me all the way. Sort That's of a vibe, beautiful so. thing, man. Isn't it? Yeah, something I was, you know, I'm really proud of that. Like, it's crazy that you've been so consistent with the releasing of records and you've put out, is it for 10 years now, you've put out a record every single year e- on 11, your birthday? Yeah, I mean, 11, yeah. 11 years. Album 11 came out in December, just gone. Unbelievable. And obviously on a organisational front, that just allows you, I guess, to really quite forward-thinkingly and easily plan out your year. Yeah. It makes life very easy in a way. Exactly that. Um, but also, I mean, is it hard to be consistently productive and creative and do you set yourself the goal of writing an album a year and then do you ever find that there's a pressure on you to produce and you're not in the zone that you know there's writing block going on i mean if you know if i didn't have an album i'd never force an album you would myself no i've not as much as it's a thing it could be i could change it into a thing fuck i've got to come up with some material no of course not too much inspiration going on with the world falling apart (laughs) it feels it feels so now that it's like quite a natural output for me, uh, to have an album ready, like you said, it means you can keep working. And, you know, like I, I, I do work hard at this, but, I, you know, I enjoy it, which as, as opposed to, you know, like jobs that I did before this, you know, this is the easiest one. I happily sit at home and, you know, write songs. <laughs> and know? it's yours, right? I mean, in a similar way to what I do with this, I think you're very much like a one-man machine. You obviously collaborate and you have people helping you and there's, yeah. there's more well, of a team around you. you know, is yeah, it, is it your mum and dad? Mum and, and, and dad do all the, all the merch, actually. Do they? Yeah, what, so post they, it out and they do all the posting out and all the kind oh, of like, so, and they're really great if people, you know, like complaints or people sending stuff back and whatnot, they're all on that. But yeah, it's, you know, it's cottage industry. My wife helps out with all of the kind of numbers and stuff like that and, um, do you have a manager or do you just do all that I yourself? work very closely with my booking agent, Adam Gainsborough. He is, you know, on paper he's my booking agent, but he, he sort of works under a sort of like manager umbrella as well. Like the two of us will, will, will plan what we want to do and how we want to do it. 
Yeah, it's almost just me and him, really. And, and how do you put out the albums? Are they on Extra Mile still, or are they self released No, I worked with Extra Mile for up until uh, album number nine. And then it was like, because I had my parents' dinner for filming. It was actually when I released the book, to be honest. Um, Is this self-published as well? Yeah, that was it. So I self-published that and just realised that, you know, like, without just the middle on words man, publishing, that's the name of... Exactly, just give it a name, make it sound like a publisher, yeah. isn't it? Like, Legitimise um, it. Yeah, exactly that. And... Uh, so yeah, doing that and sort of realizing that I didn't need a middleman, you know, to That's get it, to get it? the book into people's hands. It was like, and you know, I wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for you know Charlie and the gang at Extra Mile. But I basically, you know, and it was always had such a sweet deal with them. And I just sort of met up with Charlie, and I was like, look, I just think I'll do the next one by myself. And he was like, yeah, you know. That's what I would suggest you was doing if I was, you know, if I was you. That's what I'd do. So, so you know, like we had a pint and a high five, and there's sort of no love lost there. Um, That's a unique setup there with with Frank and Charlie and yourself. Like a lot of the time when business and friendship overlaps, the friendship can sometimes fall apart, and business can get in the way and spoil. Yeah, well, you know, I try never to let that happen, and that was never what you know. Like it was always a very, very easygoing relationship that we had you know it was, ex- it was charlie that came to me about the first album and was like do you want to put out an album i hadn't even considered it and uh so that we was just the did push, it on a handshake it? well i mean i was on tour i'd you know I was, the reason he'd said it is because i was doing a, a tour with frank turner and uh he you know he was like you'll sell enough copies of this album on the road to justify us putting it out to just go and record something, mate. Basically. And this is the first album where you did 50 songs. Yeah, right? so I was like, I'll probably want to do something <laughs> annoying, I think yeah, was my yeah. word. And he was like, why would it be annoying? And I come back, I was like, I'm going to do 50 track album and it needs to be a double CD package. Like now that's what I call music. And he was like, that's going to cost a fortune and we'll never make any money. I was like, annoying, I told you. And did they make any money? Uh, eventually, yeah. yeah. I mean, it didn't cost much, to, didn't cost anything to record. So, yeah, yeah, eventually. But yeah, who produced the first record? Ben Lovett from Mumford and Sons. Pretty uh, good pedigree, right there. So, I, let, I mean, let's backtrack a bit. Yeah, I spoke to Frank about this kind of time period, and, and Nambuka, I think, was a key venue. Was was that somewhere you did you work there, or did you a bit just more than that? But yeah, you, you lived there, did you? Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was me and like, say so Nambuka. Again, you, you, you're reeling off the stories in my book. Um, By the book. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, me and Dave started Nambuka, basically. You know, we was, we'd, we walked in, we was doing club nights at the garage. We used to, I, I moved to London. We moved to London as a band, yeah? So the band in school, we were called Jellico. We graffitied our name everywhere, told everyone we was in a band. And then we got the instruments, we started and we was like, a sort of placebo-esque kind of grunge band. Really? Yeah. Makeup and everything? Certainly painted my fingernails. Yeah. yeah. Ripped my jeans. Used to sing in a high-pitched American accent. Wow. Which is... <laughs> is uh, there any recordings of this? Yeah. Fuck yeah. 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 The album's still out there on all the streaming services. We did. I mean, we did all right. Like, we did a John Peel session. Nice. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, we released an album and, like, a few EPs on, a, like, a little label. But yeah, we did, you know, we started the band and then it was like, we're moving to London for the, you know, for the band. It's the only thing we could do. And it was what would, you know, it was was always the plan. Moved to London when we was 18. And then the band, it just sort of like fell apart, basically. Me and Dave stayed together. The bass player didn't want to live in London. And it sort of run, it's the the label. It was just kind of, the album didn't come out. And blah, 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 blah. So that stopped. And me and Dave got, basically got into club nights. And uh, we started... Uh, as DJs or as promoters or as both? As a fly- I was a flyer, 
basically. That was, we moved into London and I, you know, I used to go to Camden Palace and stuff like that, you know, feet first. This is like 20 years ago. We're going back now. And, uh, Camden Palace, what is now Coco. Coco. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, and I just started flyering for the Indie Nights, uh, two automatic promotions they were called. And they did stuff at the, the Monarch, which was then the Barfly, uh, and, wag club but anyway yeah i'd fly at all these indie nights and from that i kind of learned you know sort of like got my foot in the door there i used to fly for the garage and then i started kind of like you know sending out the other flyers and and sort of running the repping the night i guess at the garage and then that was on the saturday and then we uh, the friday come up and i just took it on outside of the club and me and dave started our first club which is called static and uh yeah, just start, you know, just And what was the music policy that. at that? Uh, anything goes. I mean, we didn't really know. It was more like we, was, we basically we had one of them first ever laptops, a sort of shell um, I, I, Apple things. Like, mm-hmm. well, it's really, really cheap sort of computer. And as much as now it's really common to DJ off um, sort of laptops and whatnot, then it was still like everyone had their big CD books and whatnot. But we didn't have any CDs, but Dave used to work at Tower Records. So we, we used to, and you could borrow CDs from then. He used to take the computer into... So they'd go in and burn them into, all up. And just right. burn them all yeah, onto yeah, this yeah. computer. And we just used to do, we just used to hit enter. I didn't even have the 12 second fade. It just like smash enter. It'd just be more about the tunes we were playing. And I learned, I mean, I learned how to DJ there at the garage because it was like, I thought I was going to play like Clinic and Idlewild and AC Acoustics, all these kind of like really sort of off, off center, like sort of left field indie weirdness. And it was like, no one wanted that shit. No, but, we want Kaiser Chiefs. No, but this was before then. This was like, you know, the, the white stripes were just coming out. Okay, white stripes, like, hives, vines. Yeah, yeah and it era. was like, we started putting, and it was like, you know, you'd put on one song, and the garage as well was like, there's the bar, there's somewhere people stand if they don't like the music, and there's the dance floor. So you learn pretty quickly, because it's like, you put on a song I don't like, and they literally go off, and then you put on this, uh, and then it just turned into, I used to put on the flyer, same songs, different order. So just like, we just had like a, a playlist of like 30 songs and we just basically hit enter and then just get hammered and we just you know and we just promoted the night and whatnot and that was our first club night and uh were there any notable people coming to that did you feel like it was an exciting time or was i mean it was it that was a few people from then i mean that was the beginning of what turned into a much much bigger thing for us like from that so we just kind of like got our head around a little bit of promo and we, was, we made, you know, it was just me and Dave. We, we did everything. We DJed, flight, everything. So it was like all of a sudden people that, are, Dave was still at Tower for then, but it's like the money was, became real, you know, yeah. for really quickly. And it was like, fuck, let's do this, you know. And, uh, Get paid to throw parties. Yeah, yeah the dream. And then, we, and then we just, when it walked into Nambic, we used to live up at the top, up in Archway. And we just walked into the pub and it was like e- empty. And when I say empty, there was not one person in there. This huge pub, it's kind of a guy behind a bar that we got chatting to and we spent all day drinking in there and not one person came in and there was this huge room at the back and we were just like, mate, why is, and he was, why is no one here? It's crazy. You know, it's a Sunday. And he, was, he just said, well, you know, I've just taken it on. We're trying to get it off the ground. And we was like, we'll throw you a party on a Sunday, next Sunday, if you want, for free beer. And he was like, all right, do you reckon you can bring people in? We was like, yeah, fuck yeah, we can. Like, and little did we know the network that we'd built. We sort of promoted it that the sat at the at Static on the Friday, and it just mobbed out on the like. And the guy was just like, oh wow, like you know, filled in. We was doing we we had a we literally had a hi-fi 
like a CD player hi-fi. <laughs> that was, <laughs> so, and then, you know, and from that, you know, it's a lot, it's a long story, but you know, like then we started doing more nights in Nambuka and then the, you know, the guys, I was just looking for something one day and I said, it might be upstairs. I went upstairs and this pub, there's 11 empty rooms. There's two people living in these 11 rooms upstairs. And I was like, can we move in? And he was like, what? I was like, we live around the corner. I was like, can we just live here? And, you know, I lived there for the next five years of my life, you know, and then he left. He was like, this place had turned into a circus. And then there. <laughs> and was it truly like. Fuck yeah. I mean, then off the, the rails. The guy, the guy that owned the pub, then, you know, like, he kind of came. And he he had like he he had like nine or ten different pubs, and he was like uh, this uh, sort of Irish. Kind of, I don't know. He didn't give a shit. Basically, he was just like the place needed work, and it wasn't going to get done. And we wasn't asking for it to get done. We was just like, yeah, you know, we'll put money. We just in want the bank. somewhere to dust. Yeah, we'll put money in the bank. It was like it, was cl- it wasn't a squat, but you know, like it was. There was no one to ring, but it was also this this secret behind Nambuka, which I don't think anybody really knows. Is it lives in no man's land. Because it's basically like... Um, Holloway Road, right? Is that where it is? Well, it's, it's, it's on Holloway Road. But it's like Islington Council is, also, is one half of Holloway Road. And Haringey Council is, is the other side of Holloway Road. And like Haringey put Christmas decorations up to like 20 metres away from Nambuka on one side. And Islington put them up about 20 metres the other side. Like, and I think if so you... So it is literal purgatory. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you've got a noise complaint and you ring... About Nambuka, they go, ah, oh, it's Haringey. And I go, ah, oh, it's Islington. And no one, because I know after that, I went on to, to, you know, run and promote a few pubs. And instantly, I mean, we moved to a pub called The Flower Point in Kentish Town straight away after that. And I had the police round within a week that were like, what the hell do you think you're doing? And I was like, what? I was like, you can't just take the whole pub upstairs and have a party until the pub opens up again. And I was like, yeah, of course you can. That's, like, <laughs> that's what we've been doing for five yeah, years. Yeah, mate. I was like, that's how we. I was like, that's how we roll. And I was like, you've not even got any curtains up. And it was like, well, I was like, we'll get some curtains if you want. But I was like, no. And I was like, you know, like we don't, we can't take away your license. I was like, I ain't got a license. <laughs> and uh, so that very quickly came to an end. Yeah, it? and it was like wow. And I only realised in hindsight what we used to get away with at Nobuka, which was you know you know the pub would be shut for days and then open twenty four hours. You know, we'd have so we managing the pub on the roof. Well, then we had like um, our mate Sticks used to manage it, and he got uh, so we basically as the other chap left. Is it like kind of just the parents have gone for summer? And yeah, I mean, we worked years. hard as well. Because then at the same time, we had an office on the top floor. And at the same time, so then me and Dave then opened up a club in the West End called Frog, which was, and this was like the height of indie music in central London. Well, in, in the world, but we, you know, this was central London. So it's like, we did a club night called Frog at the LA2, at the Mean Fiddler, it was called then, yeah. So underneath the Astoria, a thousand capacity. And, you know, we used to sell it out, every, you know, every night of the week. We had we Every had, night of the sorry, week. Sorry, every, <laughs> every Saturday. Every Saturday. <laughs> Not every night of the week. Still impressive. It every, every Saturday night. It'd sell it, and we'd basically, an old schoolmate, uh, then worked for the enemy, and he was the new band's editor, and he used to book the bands. So me and Dave put on the pie, he booked the bands, and we'd basically, we'd open at 10 o'clock, band on at 1 a.m., and... Uh, and then DJs through till three. And we had, you know, the Kaisers, Maccabees, Block Party. All before they blew as well. On their way up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On their way up. And some, you know, when they were big, it was, you know, it was the place to play. And it was just like one, you know, it was, it was also like, don't, you don't need a crowd, you know, like this place is already full. You just come down and, and, and play. 
And it, yeah, it was, you know, so we was running that for the five years that we was at. at so we had, we had the pub and, you know, we had the club on a Saturday and we had the pub the rest of the week. And yeah, so Sticks used to manage the bar and we had, you know, it was like a whole kind of list of characters like Tree, who's now Frank's tour manager. Like she'd do the door at Frog and she was like, you know, doing bits and bobs in the bar. And then there was like Danny and Tom who DJ and kind of hype men and stuff like that. It was like a whole list of characters. And we was just like, Everyone there had a role. Yeah, we was all just getting away with it as well. And it was like, you know, and again, like, without being crashed, you know, we was making money that no one had ever seen. No one had really, you know, like, literally having a party and just coming back. And you got no back. outgoings because you got no family, you got no bills. Yeah, we just, can't, yeah. we just can't, we just can't, we just bring the money back from Frog, just put it under the bed and see if we could spend it before the next week. <laughs> and just like, just go for it. You know, and then we, and like, and then we could burn down. You know, Did it really? That, yeah. On your watch? I was in India, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, ultimately yeah. that was, and it was, and it was weird because. And was that know, the end of the dream? Was that the end? And of it that? was the time. It was time. Was yeah, it? it was definitely. It was what weird because, like, considering, yeah, considering that you know, like everybody lost everything. You know, and there was no one was injured, which was all that really mattered. But you know, I lost everything I owned. I was on holiday, and I lot, you know, like the bands that we worked with all lost their equipment, you know, like everywhere and everybody, you know, 11 people lost their home as well as all their possessions. But not one person, everyone was like, <laughs> probably for the best. Could have been a lot worse. As yeah, well, it could yeah. have been a lot worse. And also like, it's we time. got away with it. Let's, you know, like, cool. I think if it, uh, there's a, you know, there's a different reality where I'm still living at Nambuka, playing gigs to 30 people downstairs, you know, sniffing the line of coke every night, you know, like, which I'm glad that that's not my reality. Um, it's a young man's game, isn't it? It was, I mean, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to sit and think about it, actually. It's, uh, you know, like it was, and it was, you say before, did Static feel special? That like, that time in Nambuka was like, there, there was, because there was so much amazing music. Like I remember seeing Florence and the Machine uh, play not even in Nambuka we got keys to another pub down the road I remember seeing her stamping her foot and just singing this song and I'd seen I sort of knew her to chat to her and then I saw her singing this song and I was like to myself I was like that is like world quality like that's she's a superstar like there's no way of tonight I was like that's what why is she you know why is this happening here and why doesn't the world know about it so then when it turned out the Florence Machine became Florence and Machine. I was like, oh, thank fuck for that. You know, like I was, you know, and you can see, see through it. And yeah, you know, a lot, you know, you know. Who else? Bastille, Mumford and Sons. Like, yeah, you know, and, and they were bands that were just playing, yeah, sort of on their Laura Marlin used to play there a fair few times, Jamie T, like all, and, and certainly all the, that was all The on, scenesters of that time, right? The people that went on to, as you say, become these kind of internationally world, renowned world-class pop stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that I loved then. and Just and all down that. the bar, week in, week out, hanging well, you out. Well, you know, and, and, and as far as was I'm it like sure... like a revolving was, door? Yeah, I'm sure that there was like, uh, um, you know, they was also playing loads of other venues around around London at, at the time. Uh, you know, it's certainly not laying claim to, to any of them. But yeah, you know, like it was... There was a lot of love for the place. Yeah, it was Were you time. making music at this time? I, I kind of just start. I mean, I'd never stopped writing songs from the Jellicoe stuff. And then I also, like, uh, so the Holloways were the other band that come out of Nambuka, and I managed them. So I was, like, doing a management role with the clubs. I was still writing, and I'd play at, I, I had, like, a country band called me and Dave, drummer from the Holloways, and the guy that I did all of this with. Um, we had a... a country western covers band where i still sang in my american accent called barry the cactus 
And we used to do like John Prine <laughs> songs and BR549 numbers. Uh, and, and we used that to kind of fill in gaps between bands at Nambuka. And that was around that time. Like my whole first album was written in Nambuka. And uh, it was... Yeah, and that was when I first started doing that. Like at the parties upstairs and whatnot, I get a guitar, and then it was just like, okay, and then we just started, yeah, playing. Uh, yeah, I played a fucking shit ton. <laughs> no, because basically. And was like, it always going to be a solo yeah. project, or was it initially going to be a band? The initially it was a band. In my head, it was a band, and I did one gig as with a piano player and someone playing pedal steel guitar. Where was that? And that was at a jam in Brixton, so yeah. in Alabama Free. Um, at their club night, which I don't even know how it come about, but did we had like two rehearsals and we did this gig, and then after that I went to Glastonbury and I'd written like a bunch of songs for that. It was going to be called Beans and Toast, and it was going to be this band, and I went to Glastonbury and got there was like it wasn't like an open mic, but there was just a sort of like no one's playing, and it was just a sort of mic and a guitar, and I was like, I'm going to get up and do them tunes. Just and rush the stage, or was it just in the tent? It was a like... bit more vibe, vibes than that. It was like it wasn't like scheduled open mic, but it was pretty relaxed setup. And I, I think that was like, does anybody want to, you know, want to go? Floors open? Like, do you think? Yeah, yeah, and I was like, all right, got up, and I, I think halfway through my first song, I was like, fuck, this is easy, easy, way easier than with a band. The songs had become. The, what the Beans on Toast songs are now, you know, I'd met someone who was like, stop singing in a fucking American accent, you idiot. Um, and I was, you know, basically had a whole bunch of songs about getting hammered at festivals. and Playing two people who are hammered at festivals, yeah. Preaching to the converted. And it just went, <laughs> and basically like that, once I did, I played, I played all the songs I had, you know, I played for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I, I knew by the end of the gig, that was what Beans on Toast was then. I was like, you know, okay, you know, this works so much easier. And little did I know how, you know, much easier it is. I'd been managing, you know, a four-piece band. So I knew how, how what a tour cost, you know, and how difficult it was for, you know, even just keeping people's spirits high, you know, and stuff like that. And, it was, and making decisions on what shit's going to look like and stuff like that. And then it was just like, all I have to do, I mean, you know, all I have to do is do it myself, mm -hmm. which is it's so easy. You know, don't run anything by anyone. Never met, you know, like if I want to do something, you know, if a gig comes in, I can decide on decisions. And to this day, you know, it's been a huge blessing. I think from seeing how bands operate. Yeah, you had all the tools in place, right? You had the experience, you had the first-hand knowledge and vision to get it done. And then you're like, well, it's just me. There's no tape stopping me. Yeah. Let's plow ahead. And, and that's basically what happened. Yeah. And, and you've been doing it for and then it was just 13 like, years so ever then, since. Yeah, exactly. And it was, and then it was like one, and, and I never really, it wasn't like, this is it. And this is what I'm, I'm going to do. It was just like, wow, this is easier than forming that band. I'll definitely do this. And then it was like one gig just led to another without ever pushing it. I never, I'd never go anywhere where I was. So you didn't invited. do a Frank and kind of establish yourself as a solo artist. And well, I sort of put, you know, I, I, I had a MySpace page. Right. I did that, and <laughs> you know, and and a song about MySpace, uh, and uh, and then I just did gigs basically, and it was just like whenever I did a gig, someone would come up and offer me another one, and I'd say, and I said yes. I just did, you know, I, I, whether there's any money in it or not, if it was just like generally, just would you want to come and play? for beers and or do you want to come and open this band and then you know and obviously at the same time frank was then you know turning into because you know frank was at nambuka a lot we used to 
you know, sit and trade songs, play guitar and talk about music all the time. And then he was like, Frank went off on tour and come back like the hero. And I was like, whenever he played, I'd always support, you know, Nambuco. Just be like, well, he gives you a nice a, mention in the book, which I'm be, sure that you've, be a given. And you've then seen it was and like, read. Yeah. And then, well, you know, since then, Frank's had my back, you know, like, like he has a lot of the, you know, that cast of characters that I mentioned, you know, obviously Frank was one of them and, you know, like, and he's many of them, as, you know, still work with him, you know. Sounds like the Mumford guys have done the same as well. Yeah. I don't know them, but from Yeah, well, like, so Ben produced, Ben, and- they, they was just starting off. When I did that, so then Charlie said, make the album. And uh, I was like, well, how the hell do I record an album? And I said, just happened to be out with, yeah, the Mumford boys. And I said to Ben, who I knew had some recording equipment and we recorded, Mumford and Sons were playing then, but it hadn't exploded. Uh, Ben was still living with his parents and we recorded the album in his parents' loft, basically. Right. He had some recording equipment. And he's, you know, multi-instrumentalist. So we recorded 50 songs at a weekend. Uh, and just invited, in a weekend? Yeah, just Amazing. invited a bunch of people around. And Who was else like, was on that record? Uh, Holloway's, Frank, Justin Young from uh, then JJ Pistolet, but now the vaccines. Um, Amy the Great. Does it feel now, I mean, I doubt you ever go back and listen to your own records because you're always making new ones and you're always playing them. Yeah. But does some of those songs take you back to that time and place? Does it feel like a document of that time and place as well? Yeah, it just sounds like that. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> back to the fuzzy voice. Yeah, of course, man. I mean, you know, I still sing, you know, there's still a couple of songs from that album that get played, you know, pretty much every gig, you know. So it, it, it's, it stayed with me that time, but... That's exactly what it is, you know, and I do as much as I'd, I'd never really sit and listen to my music for enjoyment. I definitely have, you know, sort of like nostalgic moments where I, I can sit and, and even just sort of like glancing across the track listing of an old album can put me into. No you know, doubt. Yeah, be like, oh, yeah, like, oh, yeah. Well, all, all your that, records are so I? autobiographical and a commentary on what's going on in the world as well that I really feel like your records will in 10, 20 years from now even be able to stand as these documents of time periods for people that have grown up and, and been on the journey with you because, you know, you're talking firsthand about what's going on, not just in your own personal life, but in the world around you with each record, aren't you? Each one is very yeah, much that's exactly what a reflection is, yeah. of the times. Yeah. I, and more, not that I'm sort of like trying to sort of put it like, you know, dig a hole and bury it in a time capsule, but more just because of what else are you going to sort of sing about? But yeah, you know, it's certainly nice for me to have, to have that. To uh, I'm not really one for nostalgia, um, but saying that's in here talking about it. It feels, it feels good. It feels great. Yeah. <laughs> Which album did Frank produce? Was it number two? Number three. Number three. Uh, Who did number called, two with you? Uh, number two I did. So then I, I hooked up with, um, uh, instrumental kind of folk band called The Handshake and was like, let's make an album and, and re- recorded it with a chap called Ian Grimble, very good producer. Um, and then Frank produced number three, an album called Trying to Tell the Truth. What was two then, Writing on the Wall? Exactly. Yeah. That. yeah. Uh, and that was... Was that around the Wembley time it period? It was during the, <laughs> during the recording of the album. You know, I've always like, said Frank's always looked after me and I'm constantly asking for favours and whatnot. And like, oh, what about this? And, and he was like, can you produce my album? And he was like, it was during the making of the album that we was in the pub opposite and he was like, do you want to play Wembley? I was like, yeah, you know, not like, what? It's like, okay. And he was like, he literally just like, you know, had the final call in. 
I was, and I was like, you know, like you're not giving me enough by producing the record. Also, get you know a stadium show thrown in for good measure as well. Um, so yeah, that was all, all, you know, and that worked perfectly because then you know the album come out off the back of that huge show. Yeah, and uh, I mean that must have been a, a very exciting moment for for you guys to have come up together in that same time period, and then for you to have been there and experienced that show what with a him. Day, man, yeah, what, what I a mean, crown in his jewel, right? Yeah. Or a jewel in his crown, should I say? Yeah, I mean it was like because I think because it was such a brave move. I mean now it's clear that you know. Frank knows his way around, you know, like a, a, an arena show. But at the time, it was like it was it, balls out, man. It was, yeah. really was. It was like you know, like t- like missing a step <clears throat> and yep. asking everybody to stand by your side while you'd be brave for a day. And uh, yeah, it was great. And it, and you know, and I think you, you know, I I don't know what my role was there. You know, obviously to, to play over. He was even like, well, you were the guy to cut the ribbon, right? And well, set the also, tone. And- but, but also, Frank was like, on the day, he was like, I want to make a documentary about you, Beans on Toast, The Road to Wembley, because I don't know what I'm going to do during the day. So Frank kind of woke me up with a video camera and we sort of did a few chores and sort of filmed the whole thing. And uh, and that was sort of how he chose to spend a day leading up to it. So is that, do you think, to distract himself from the... The looming. I doubt it's because show. he's so interested in what I'm doing. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was. It just. It, I think, you know, it made it. It, it was. It was a great idea, you know. And it is that on YouTube? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and there's actually a bit in there where I get out of the taxi as we arrive, and uh, I I don't hold the seat for Frank who sat in the back <laughs> as he arrives at Wembley and I like step out of car and put my arms in the air like I'm here and Frank's like getting up <laughs> the hell and thing That's again amazing. not my proudest moment <laughs> but yeah I mean yeah what, what a wicked move and, and what a gig what a day and then was the arena tour the year after that I mean after yeah, the so success after of that, that was he was just, just like, like I mean without you know without sort of blowing my own trumpet too you killed much, it it I, I did well for that 20 minute set. I mean, I was sort of like. Was the room full? Were they there from sort of doors yeah. ready? Yeah, and to I go? learned that through the other room shows as well. Everyone, you know, like you. Because the thing about somewhere like Wembley, where it's like, it, you know, if you've got 4,000 people in there, it's potentially going to look empty and embarrassing, which is stupid. Because imagine playing to 4,000 people. But, you know, and I would have taken it whatever. You know, if there was two people in there, I, I would have rolled of it. But, you know, it's because of what it was it wasn't just any old show because it was like and everybody you know it was like frank had curated the lineup especially it was like people who else were, was on the bill billy bragg was on there uh, and right? screw and dan sack and scrooby's pip interesting yeah right and it was like you know it was people were through the door the plate you know the place i mean i got off because it was like a 20 minute like bang 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 gig i wrote a song called hello wembley like right did the song blah, blah, and then i was just like there's was like you got you know obviously you can't overrun like that. It's like your time's up, and I was just like, I really didn't want to leave. So, so I was just twenty like, minutes is going to go like that, it isn't it? Did, yeah. like so that. I just I crowd surfed off. You know, that's how many people were in there. I dived into. The, I didn't say I was elegantly laid myself on the crowd, and they carried me out. Literally, like like the sort of like the end Wayne's of world the, moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the DJ Steve Lamack was DJing, and I don't know whether he knew how it was going to go, but he put on Mr. Big Stuff. So I'm literally being carried out through an arena. <laughs> Who do you think, think you are, <laughs> Mr. Big Stuff? Amazing. And then just got take like like right out the door. And so there was enough people to escort, you know, to carry me to the back of the arena. So it was a full house. 
And uh, yeah, and after that, Frank was just like, when the next arena tour come up, he was like, you are arena ready. Do you want to do seven arenas next year? And that was when Flogging Molly were main support. Hence, right. I met them. Hence and then I, they took you out stateside, ended up right? Been out on the states with them, and hence I ended up on the boat. So yeah, one gig leads to another. And is this around the time you started to think about maybe kicking in the fags, the coke, getting rid of all of that as things are taking off, or was it a little bit later that you had that word uh, with yourself? I'm trying to think again. I can probably work it out through the albums, um, the croaky albums. <laughs> yeah, it was about. Uh, <laughs> it was a couple of years later. It was a couple. Of, so you had a you had a good time for a while. Yeah, so when yeah. I said things were just starting <laughs> off for me when I kicked it, I meant that that summer I just had some bookings. But yeah. yeah. I mean, what an amazing, again, since then, like things have just continued to flourish and festivals, obviously. I think with acts like you and Frank, they've really taken you under their wing, haven't they? Like Frank has a similar relationship with Reading. I think yeah. he's played there almost every year. There's been a couple of years in the last 10 that maybe he hasn't. And I think to be continuously invited back is a testament to how much the bookers know that you're a sure thing and love what you do and yeah, the crowds feels, are into yeah. it every year. I mean, year Boomtown's my new one that I get, Boomtown. you know, where I... Like, I've never been, mate. I really want uh, to go this year for the first time. Come along. I'm planning on it. Uh, it's, I mean, that was one where it's like when I, I st- started playing there, before they kind of had much folk music, it was still quite ravey. Now yeah. it's, you know, it's grown so much. Well, now they've and- got like drum and bass obviously but then there's like metal there's there's ska there's reggae there's hip hop underground like, music yeah. basically they celebrate underground music uh, but it's certainly you know it was uh, the, the the drum and bass and the kind of reggae and that side of it is kind of where how it was born yeah uh, and uh, and the sort of punk thing as well but anyway it's sort of the first gig that I the first time I played there was on like a, a, a tiny little stage in the woods and it was like I think I was doing like poetry and performance and stuff in there it wasn't even really a stage it was just like on a Sunday and it's just like mobs of people turned up like mobs of people and it was like three days of raving Sunday three o'clock beans or toast gig everyone was up for it and then the next year they was like oh, we'll put you on the bandstand which was a little thing in the middle as the festival was growing and then it was just like that mobbed out and then they was like Go on this because they don't have a main stage. They so have a whole bunch of big stages. Yeah, like the Lions Den would be the biggest, but really it's like set out. It's different from most festivals in that way. And uh, so I did this uh, stage called the Old Mines Sunday three o'clock. And again, you know, and uh, by this time they had you know like Johnny Flynn was playing and a whole bunch of like you know like they'd really again the festival had grown and as it had the sort of like the lineup that they were booking. But my shows would just be like. Sunday, three o'clock, bang, and it just right. And I've yeah, again, I've played every year since that first year, and now that I've moved to the town centre, which is one of one of the you know like the main stages, and I was really reluctant to do it because I was just like, if we do it, can we still do it every Sunday? You know, is or that it, your optimum slot for a festival? Sunday, three p.m. Is that where you most like to play? Yeah, that's the that's the beans on toast gig. You know, that is you know like especially for a hedonistic festival. Yeah, um, you know that's. I don't want to push it too hard because it's nice to play a few festivals over a weekend. But yeah, you know, and certainly, and that there's there's a magic in that time for for me. It's bit you know like and and yeah, uh, Boomtown seemed to see it as well. You know, it's like we we moved to the town centre last year and it was just like again it just works and it's just like yeah being out like I said and I've done a lot of stuff with Boomtown 
because of that. We, like I said, take, going under their wing and whatnot. Like they, I wrote a song for them on the new album called uh, Take Your Shit Home With You about That's about, people taking their tents. So my friend Sam has been volunteering for the festival and doing exactly that. So I think there's a girl that she works for or with that maybe you know. And okay. she, she had the idea of, well, if we've just got hot guys and hot girls going around the campsite dressed up basically flirting with people saying can you take your tent home right then the, you know the end of the weekend all these kind of ravers that are coming down are going to see these cute guys or girls and yeah, they're going to yeah just, you know what just decent actually, people, isn't i was going to leave it but now i'm yeah, yeah. it's and so they're asking taking people is a long you know it goes a long way yeah and not, uh, not even guilt tripping them but just asking them and uh i mean it's that you know like the, the boomtown basically have a problem with it as do most major uk festivals reading certainly if not yeah. All. yeah certainly the young the ones that attract a kind of younger clientele but you know they had a huge list of things that they wanted to do to combat it and one of them i guess quite far down the list was like ask beans to write a song about it but you know it's good that i, I can serve that purpose that was like you know, do you think you can do something about it? I was like, fucking write a song about anything. Man. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. You know, I love it when people ring me up and say, can you write a song about this? It's like, you're doing my job for me. It's Mate, like, you've got to do me a podcast the, song. Yeah, I do. But I do <laughs> you a jingle. Into it now. I should have called you three I, years I, ago. I do you a jingle. Well, my third birthday's coming up January 31st. That's same day as my brother. That's the you day go. your I tour starts. That. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I wanted to ask you this, this first chat. of all. Are we on a time limit? I feel like I've been chatting. We're, we're on an hour and 10. Right, okay. That's good for are you? you cool? Yeah, that's cool for me, mate. Right. Uh, there is no time constraints. Um, when did you feel like you were starting to branch out as a songwriter and touch on, you know, say perhaps politics or socio, like social awareness? Was there a shift that you felt or was that always there in your music? I think it was the it's it's always been there. I mean it's you know the the first song I put out the my MySpace page song, you know, was if Tony, I think the opening line is if Tony Blair had a MySpace page, do you think he would be my friend? Um but it was I never set even then it was just like to a certain extent everything's political and if you're going to say and let me get my words right. I think 
the fact that I'm so clear about what I'm singing about in my songs, it's yeah. very say what you see. It's not, you know, like, this is a song about this subject and this is how I feel about it. And because it's so obvious, it's like then, you know, and it's opinionated at the same time, then it's like it bec automatically becomes... It's charged. Way, yeah. it's automatically yeah. it turns into this sort of like, it's political music because... It's observational. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. And it's like, and and it's also because there's such, you know, like, it's not like my albums are full of political music. There's, you know, I've written more love songs probably than I have anything else. Um, but it's just no one really goes, oh, it's the love singer. You know, like it's like it's the political singer and they'll just it's just an easier tag, I think. Or maybe the song's more memorable. I don't know. But I write songs about a lot of different things. And, you know, like more and more so now, you know, it feels my last album was the whole album was about the future of humanity. And it's, uh, you know, like lyrically a very bleak album. It was, you know, it's about Brexit, climate breakdown, you know, the sort of like rise of artificial intelligence, all the, you know, the sh the, the shitstorm that's that, that's coming for us, basically. And it felt for a while kind of rude to write about anything other than that. But that's now, you know, because I guess it is now I am, you know, a bit more honed into how I want an album to feel and sound. And I guess I write albums and a bit more collectively, certainly before it would just be like, here's a song, here's a song, here's a song, here's a song, there's an album, bash. Now there's a bit more of a theme going on around them. Certainly for the last two albums, fatherhood as well. Yeah, I well, I think I, I think it was. I think so. Tracking it back now, so becoming a father, and then that album was written. A bird in the hand. That's was, the last one, not the newest one, but yeah, the one before. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah, and like that that album was written. I, you know, we brought my beautiful daughter back home from the hospital, and it was like you create this like bubble around your home where that's all that matters. And it was such a, I never witnessed anything like it. It was such a beautiful and kind of life affirming time. And that was when I wrote the most of that album, you know, and certainly even once the bubble sort of slowly started turning into reality, I was still like, that's what the album was about because they've always been a capsule of the year and that was my year, but it was like more consuming than anything else before. So that whole album was centered around that. And then it was like part of me just wanted to keep on writing songs about my daughter. I was like, she's going to hate. Imagine her being, you know, 15 and having your dad put your whole life to your whole diary to free chords for you. So I was like, I can't. It's just not fair on her. Um, and there was an element of like, touring that album. It felt a little bit like. Did it make you miss her a lot? Uh, no, no. I mean, yeah, obviously I missed her. But no, touring the album was was more like I felt a little bit like what the fuck am I doing? Like the world's falling apart. You know, Trump was, I was like, if ever the world needed a protest song, it's now and here I am. Singing, singing about bliss and Singing about, yeah. about how, you know, how much, you know, how much love is going on around doorstep. And it was, you know, and, and then it was like, I got also had songs about like the hospital where she was born. And that was on the tour, what I was saying before I did a song about Homerton Hospital, where I'd be like, I was worried about not writing a protest album. If ever the world needs a protest album. But Donald Trump had recently been on um, on air or whatever, speaking loads of shit about uh, London hospitals, saying there was blood over four. Oh, he knows nothing about London hospitals. And the, the, it frustrated me so, and I was like, sometimes the best way to protest is to celebrate. So, you know, as much as I didn't have Donald Trump in mind when I sung this song, celebrating this London hospital, but, you know, fuck you, Donald Trump. This is a song about how great Hamilton Hospital is. And it was like, so I was kind of trying to write, sort of justify it to myself. But I don't know, I come out of that album and I was like, I'm not going to write about family. 
like and I felt a little bit like I hadn't hadn't made much of a comment on what was going on 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 the White Scout. And then I just sat down and wrote this fucking real miserable album. You say that, but what you do so well is you take on heavy topics and yeah, it's bleak in lyrical content and themes, but the music's very bright. Well, but there's, there's an so optimistic the message. Album, there's hope, there's so positivity. Changed, so then I so after I I mean I could have if I recorded the inevitable train wreck. The As same you'd have done it the way, way the demos were. Yeah. Or the or if I did it in the way that I did any other album, it would you know, if it followed the kind of my guitar, it would have been you know, miserable. Somber. Yeah. It's somber. And you know, and and I don't want that. Who you know, who wants that? So it was like I sat with the songs and I was like, I'm gonna need to, you know, like, how am I gonna present these to the world? And then I was like, maybe I'll make a rock and roll album. You know, like old school rock and roll used to deal with a lot of, you know, heavy subject matter, but it also have a backbeat and like a real dance. Where I was like, just make a really like the music wants to be super happy. So I love contradictions as well. And it's almost like, well, you know, people don't know what they get. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go. What's the song on and on? Uh, well, on and on's a bit, yeah. On and on's the last song. That's a bit more classic. Beans on toast. Like the, the opening song on the album's called "Well Gone Crazy." Yeah, and that's and that's like, rock and roll, isn't it? Yeah, that's I'm, rock so and roll I wrote so chugga chugga Yeah, so and I I basically didn't write any of the music on the album. Right. So I wrote I wrote the demos, and then I I knew exactly who I wanted to make the album with. You know, like my favorite rock and roll band, uh, Kitty, Daisy, and Lewis. And I, we're that we're old mates. They used to play at Nambuka. They was like one when uh, Kitty and Daisy and Lewis played in Nambuka. We worked this out recently, but Kitty was was nine years old when they did their first gig there. And the first gig that they played, they turned up with a PA that I bought off their dad. And that was the that was how Nambuka started, really. So I've known them for years. And you know, I know it's not like we'd hang out all the time. I'd see him, our paths would cross. But they're part of your story. But yeah. And I and I was like, you know, I knew they had this studio in Kentish Town. I'd never been there or anything, but I was just like, and I bumped into Lewis on a train. And I was just like, and I mailed him. I was like, look, I want to make a rock and roll album. Let Can we go for a pint? And uh, it just, you know, the stars were aligned because basically he was just like, look, I, I'm up for it. He was like, Daisy is about to have her second kid. So we're having a bit of a, you know, break from the band in September, which is the only time that I could have recorded it. He was like, me and Kitty can do it. Meant to be. In September. And I was like, book it in. And uh, yeah, and, and, and then, I, you know, they did exactly as I asked. I was like, if you let me play guitar, it will sound like another Beans on Toast record. I was like, I've got the melodies for the vocals. I've got the lyrics. I want it to be a rock and roll record. And uh, I gave him the keys to the car. And I just sat back in the studio and watched him do it. I've never had, I mean, I've worked with a lot of different musicians. Was that easy for you? Was that? Yeah, it was, it was yeah. so good. I yeah. mean, it was what a thing to watch someone put so much, someone, some people so talented. Just put, put so much sparkle. So and much love and attention. Yeah. And they really, I mean, they, I was like, well, that's a rap. And I was like, that's it, fuck. We've got to go, but that is nowhere near it, Jay. I was like, I mean, I, we had a, a running joke playing a Rubik's Cube. You know, it's just like, shut up. All my, I was like, what about a bit of doo-wop? Shut up. Like, sit down. <laughs> and it was like, like, for two weeks, I did nothing. Just Brilliant. sat there and just like, well. So how you, are you going to tour with them? So the, the, we, What's going to happen with these live shows coming up? And you've obviously, you've obviously done a run just before Christmas. We so. did, we so like it was you know the the run before christmas was a duo with me and a guy called matt magic fingers 10 sheds who's also supporting uh we'd we've been doing a duo show last summer and this great piano player he can play rock and roll so we was doing that and he played piano on the album and stuff but the sort of, and, and that was 
a longer run and it was like smaller venues in in smaller towns and cities uh, you're the king of that right I love playing new places. You, you've played I, all over the I UK, lo- haven't you? Play- well, we're, so there's few still do some. as well. There's still some. We're there still is. Sourcing a tour at the moment, yeah. Um, <laughs> to but, boldly but, go where no man has gone before. Exactly. Well, where I haven't been before. <laughs> um, but yeah, this the tour which starts in a couple of weeks is with Kitty and Lewis. And Great. Matt. Wow. Full band, full rock and roll show. Is this the first show. full band tour you've done? Or? Uh, no, I've done various you've stuff done- over the years, but certainly the full, I mean, like, normally and and this is not knocking anything i've done in the past but normally the music the audio albums that i've made is the music has been taking the lead off of how i've written the songs on guitar yeah so people will basically play along and add instrumentation and lines to, to essentially the song that I've, the yeah. song that i've written whereas what's happened here is i mean i can't even play the songs on the new album you know <laughs> i could play them as they once were yeah but there's so what I mean, are you going to do then you're just going to sing yeah, you, and then, so that's that's literally it. Well, just I mean, we'll all, you know, it'll be awesome. you know, we'll we'll do songs off the new album. We'll probably rework a few old ones into like the the full band set. And of course, I'll do a bunch. You know, I'll, I'll play a bunch of old ones on a guitar. Yeah. you know, like you always get a bit of that at a, at a bit. We wouldn't be I had enough material to do as long a set as I like to do. I play long fucking sets. How long do you play? Like ninety days. minutes. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, and then some. Like, yeah, yeah, if yeah. there's no curfew, I'm the worst at that. If people still want to go, I've got so, so much back catalogue now. If people are like, play this one, I'll just keep going. Just yeah. Like, yeah, I really do. I can, mean, too, how many can you access at any given time? I think I've done like, you, you know, and I don't want to put people off from coming to my gigs because, like, we are, I reckon I've done some gigs that have, you know, like edged towards two and a half, three hours. Springsteen style, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's like, you know, the vibe's right, and people are, I wouldn't, you know, they want you, it. They yeah, want it. yeah, and you know, people choosing songs that I'm like, fuck yeah. If I'm, if, you know, at the same time, I might forget the words to a song that I've sung a hundred times one night on the fly. But at the same time, if like someone might shout out a song, and I'll go, I remember or the it. first I line, it. even oh, the first and line, and I'm going, I'll go, I'll go yeah. yeah. And then it's just like sometimes, if you're not thinking about it, muscle memory can kick in, and I can pull out songs from whew, from all sorts of strange places. Yeah. I think there's a real looseness to what you do as well, and I mean that as a compliment in the sense that you could probably walk onto any stage or into any room or space, and then you could set up what would be a gig with yeah. what you've got. Most of that are you, comes are you from, kind of at home anywhere. Yeah, and most of that would come from that's something that writing about uh, current events really works for. Like if you was like had to, and I, not that I've, I've never really busked, but like if you're on a tra- you're on a late night train home by yourself and you got your guitar and someone's like oh mate play us a song uh, and you you get it out you know it's like all right yeah i'll, I'll, I'll play your song and then if if the Have song you had that happen a lot i'd love to be there on the train once yeah, the yeah. cheeky piss guys like go on go on then yeah, and, you, the and you get something out and just crush they're yeah. like whoa all right. yeah, yeah. i mean sometimes like that week yeah exactly that or it's just like if the opening if you know you got a song and it's like open i'll generally do that with a lot of songs that i'm working on if someone's like i'll make players tune i'm like so I got yeah, I can try this out on you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly like that being able to, like you said, like, put on a gig anywhere on the fly. The the, the, the my on the spot. My personal trick for that would be yeah, sing about something that's you know that's really current, and people are like oh right, oh okay, well, well. And, and then they know it's yours and stuff like that as well. Rather yeah, than, yeah, you know, just here's another it, cover. Yeah, yeah, busting out a guitar and, and singing something else. I love it. Um, didn't you make a series of documentaries about small towns in the UK as well? I did one one documentary. One called, is that on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. It's called Small Town Celebrations, which is uh, weird looking back at that because it was 
it was basically the year of Brexit. Right. And it was like me. So the country is more divided than no, but there seemingly was, ever, was, but it actually was it's basi- not. Well, it was like, so the t- we did it in, when, when was it, we did it in like April was the tour, yeah? And we went to, the plan was we go to all these small towns, like I said, people haven't been to. So it was, or, or it was like, and it was like places that people kind of give a lot of shit, get a little shit for. So we went to like Bolton and Swindon. Oh God, where else? Like, plus like Warsop. Um, just sort of like, yeah, small towns basically. And we was just like, we found a local act in each city town and was like um they was on support and then i was like can i meet up during the day and just like you show us around the town tell us a little bit about it and it and i was like try and find an activity to do and then i put a thing online saying if anybody's got any anything we could do in these cities milton Keynes, blah, blah, what can we do during the day tell us about your town we want to come and document it and then it turned into what turned out to be actually better was on stage of an evening being like, if anyone's here that can take us anywhere tomorrow in this town, we want to come. As right, long as so we can leave at three o'clock. So we'd arrange something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like the best one for in Bolton, I said that. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he was like, I'm, uh, I've run Cars Pasties, uh, like five generation family, uh, like basically like a sort of mini Greg's, like pastry shop. And he's like, it's like Bolton Institution. Do you want to come to Cars, like where, uh, factory warehouse tomorrow? And uh, and see how they're made. These pies and these legendary Bolton sausage rolls are made. And uh, and we took a bunch of people that from the be gig. Couldn't be more you as well. You we tried. We right? took a bunch of people from the gig. <laughs> we was just like, like the last people standing at the bar. It's like anybody want to come to Carl's Pastry uh, Workshop? And they was like, yeah. They all like we all in hair nets and went out. And Amazing. Like, talks like stuff like that. And was just like just giving a shit, just going out there and giving a shit. But in the documentary, it was really fun. And it was like me like filming these kind of like the forgotten in England and this sort of semi-detached house and this kind of like lovely existence. And no one spoke about Brexit once in April. Yeah. And then I premiered the film at the groovy movie solar powered cinema in Glastonbury the day after Brexit had fucking happened. And it was like, and it almost like the film stank all of a sudden. It was like, Oh my God, like how, I mean, not, it didn't stick. I mean, it did, I've got over that now, you know, hatred is, is, is the wrong way through this, but it was like, it was so weird. I think it was like, it, it proved a lot how quickly everybody was told something mattered and made their mind up on it because it was like, everyone was like, no one knows what, you know, no one's speaking to the forgotten England. And it was like, I was, and I wasn't just speaking to people at my gigs, you know, I, I was making, I had that camera with me for the whole tour. I was speaking to taxi drivers and I was going into pubs that, you know, like, I weren't associated with my gig and talking to people like, and it wasn't on anyone's mind. And it was like, and I was celebrating this, like I said, this sort of semi-detached, what people now go, oh God, you know, that's why Brexit happened. It's all this sort of, you know, that, you know the, it was so weird. I documented it. No one said a word about it. And by the time that I got to show it to anyone, you know, like so much had happened. It happened over Glastonbury weekend, didn't it? Yeah, I remember because exactly. I went to see ZZ, uh, ZZ Top do a Glastonbury warm-up show in Birmingham. And the next morning I woke up and it had, it had passed that day. Yeah, so it would have been... Night. It was yeah. the first day at Glastonbury, yeah. I mean, that's a come down, isn't it, at Glastonbury? I had an 11 right a.m. show on the Greenpeace stage <sighs> after Brexit. What was your mindset going into that then? What was your opening gambit as well? Well, without, without, name, without name dropping, I was like, I woke up. I was, I'd been up half the night watching the little Guardian thing, going ding, 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 and sort of realised what was going to happen, but didn't know for sure. Went to sleep, woke up in the van, in the Greenpeace compound, you know, camping with all the kind of um, 
volunteers that work for Greenpeace, really lovely campsite in Glastonbury. And um, woke up and went into like their, the sort of site office and was just like, what happened? And everyone was like, you know, you know, it's bad, you know, and it's like, and it was, you know, it's really what people want. I was like, how the hell am I going to get into my mindset Turn for this on. gig? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I'll go and see Billy Bragg. You know, good place to hear bad news, Glastonbury. So I just went to Leftfield stage and uh, there he was having breakfast with like a Labour MP whose name escapes me. And I just pulled up a chair. I was like, what are we going to do? And he was like, well, I remember waking up when Thatcher was elected. And, you know, and weirdly that gig was, I walked on stage still not, you know, not really knowing how I felt about the whole scenario. And I come off stage feeling better. And I don't know if I've ever used a gig as um, not therapy, but as well, I guess maybe therapy as a kind of a like, me up a, oh, yeah, and a sort of clarification, I guess. Like um, I walked on not really knowing how I felt about it. And Reassurance bit, or yeah. reinforcement. Perhaps. Yeah. And then, you know, and like more and more that's happened. You know, I was playing a gig in Derby a couple of weeks ago when the general election happened, you know, I was touring right through the general. We haven't got time to get stuck into that in your podcast, unless you want a three hour banger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there's anything you want to specifically or explicitly state, then certainly we can get into it, but no, I'm, no, I'm happy I think to... everybody knows how everybody feels and everybody. What knows I what have happened. noticed and what I was thinking with, you know, listening to your latest record ahead of this chat is that we need optimism and hope. Like, I think when it passed that the Conservatives were going to be in office for another however many years, a lot of people were instantly like, oh, it's end of days, very melodramatic. I was like, that thinking, that attitude isn't going to get us anywhere. Sure, but yes, it's bad news. We need, you need a bit of morning, yeah. Um, (laughs) And of course, you know, it could be, things could be a lot better, but life goes on. Yeah. As you say on the last song on the album. Yeah, of course it does. Well, for now it does, isn't it? Yeah. People like me and you and the people who listen to this show and people who go to see your shows are in it together. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we are. You know, and it is, of course, we've got to be hopeful. You know, I'm an optimist, you know, and it's... But I mean, that was was a blow. And playing, I'm trying to find the tone for the gig. You know, like, I was... Now I was... I know that I was naive... But at the time, you talk about hope. I thought it was, you know, I thought Corbyn was in. Like, because in my head, why on earth would you let anybody else do the job apart from the man who was, you know, like, ideal for it? And, you know, like, I was, we were touring through, I just said I wasn't going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, we were touring, the first half of the tour, we was touring through a whole bunch of, like, really marginal areas. Like, you know, we was playing in, in Stroud and in Guildford and places where anything could have happened, you know, in South Cambridge. And the, I was, you know, I had to be, but I was like, it was supposed to be the album tour, but it wasn't. It was the, you know, I felt like I was on the campaign trail. Yeah, and it was yeah, like, yeah, right, yeah. okay, blah, blah. And, it was like, and again, it's like, yeah, I know it's easy to say preaching to the converted, you know, but at least we're out and we're at gig. You know, we was at a gig. It was like not on my fucking Facebook feed. Like, yeah, they obviously people have come to the gig because they now live that. But it's also I don't think my my crowd are that one one dimensional either. Um, and yeah, and then the, you know the results came in halfway through the or the exit polls came in halfway through the gig in Derby, which I was like, we knew that was going to happen. So the guy that was doing merch, Joel was doing merch, and uh, we gave him a mic. And was just like, right, okay, like, 
because I knew everyone was going to be looking at their phones. Like, no one's mind's really going to be at the gig. So I was like, look, this is Joe. He's my political correspondent for this evening. <laughs> like, if anything happens, he'll let us know. Keep your phones in your pocket. Let's just do the gig. We've got this. It's, you know, big thing's going to happen tonight. It's going to be a really joyous night for us all. Like, and then I just kept going, any, you know, any news, Joe, from the front line? He was like, no news yet. And it was all like, hey, this is so much fun. Blah, blah, blah. And it was like, any news, Joe? And he was like, just his face at all, basically. Yeah. And he was just like, no, no news, apparently. Yeah, he was like, he was like, I don't even want to say it into the mic. And it was like, what? And then it, the next night, you know, the next night playing in Norwich, finding the tone and it changed a lot actually over the course of the week my tone of the gigs it changed from like at least we're here together and you know like yeah we're mourning and what a shame but fuck you know almost like i've got nothing to say about it but i've got a bunch of songs that actually like are about <laughs> bubbling well also yeah but also about you know like the, the collapse of society and the end of human you know the end of human existence so, so i fucking soundtracked it for you and then it was like and then like and then I, you know when I saw all the things about how the, the age divide, yeah, where it was like all the over 50 year olds and the 18 to 24 year olds were, you know, like wouldn't, there wouldn't have been a, you know, a Tory seat at all. And I was, and then I was like, my, my, I think my final kind of sign off at the last gig in, in Colchester, which was like 21st of December. So really close to Christmas. It was like, don't go home and row with your parents. You know, don't let this come between your family. Like, because, that's clearly what's got to have happened here, you know, and, you know, I guess, you know, our time will come. You just got to wait, <laughs> wait for the older generation to die. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that and was like, wow, but I guess, you know, it's everything is relative and everything's understandable. And I think, you know, to play devil's advocate, if you've worked your entire life for something, and you just only fucking watch the same old shit on TV and you're just fed this propaganda. You believe that your pension is going to be taken from you. You believe that things that you worked for are going to be, you know, distributed to people who aren't worthy or don't deserve. You get fed the fucking lie. And that's unfortunately why we're in the state we're in, I think, is because the media has got a lot to answer for. Yeah, don't as blame much the as people the who believe the lies. Blame the people who fucking told them. Yep. Um, and question more. Question what you're being fed in the papers on, on television on the also, radio i mean that thing is that you know if, if if we need if we want hope we need to fucking change everything it just yeah. needs you know it's even if uh as lewis said the other day when i was chatting to him about it it's like you know even if you know what the, you know whatever happened in this election we'd still be sitting in this planet you know like with all the other australia shit would going. still be on fire yeah, yeah exactly and it's like you know like the the yep. all of the all of the the ways to fix the world are worldwide you know like there's no there's no saving climate change in you from within the uk yeah yeah and uh you know so it's yeah you know i, I mean i don't know how long we can wait but you know it's maybe it's just a case of you know this shit show just needs to run it all the clowns need to do their fucking routine before they fuck off and mm -hmm. let someone that knows what they're doing do it do you think about it a lot now you're a dad do you think about it more or have you always been fairly concerned for the the state of the planet and the yeah, future of the I human mean, I race just, you know I was just you just tidy up after yourself didn't you you know like i think you should keep leave. your side of the street clean yeah, yeah and leave and leave things how you found them i think it's human decency and i've always believed in that my mate and, tweeted something the other day which stuck with me. He's like, how you leave a public restroom says a lot about your character. 
Yeah. And I think that, like, whenever I, if I accidentally piss all over a seat in a pub toilet, I always will mop that piss off and leave yeah. that toilet. Even if I didn't find it that way, I'll leave it as I would want to find it. Lift the seat. Lift the seat. Clean the piss. <laughs> Flush the poo. Simple life hacks yeah. with me and Jay. Yeah. Um, what did I want to ask you on, in conclusion? I guess the the beauty for you of being a traveling minstrel and a touring musician is that you get to meet people of all walks of life and you get to see that actually we're not that different. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I love the most about, you know, the, the very minimum amount of touring that I've done in comparison to the vast amounts that you've done. You're reminded of just how little really does separate us. And yeah, how similar everybody is. It's so important to keep that in you know, the forefront of our mind, isn't it, in times like this, is actually we ain't that different. No, we're all the same. We're all flesh and blood and bones. And other things. And, yeah, we're a bit more than that. You like being on the road? Is, it, is that your favourite place? Now you've got a kid at home, do you find that the pull of the road doesn't have that same allure? Oh, we've toured. We've all toured. Yeah, we've toured together. And, and we will do. You know, I used to tour a lot with just me and my wife. And uh, so we've done a few tours with, with little Ren. Nice. And, uh, and, and there'll be more. Um I, I, you know, if I'm honest, I love everything about what I do. You know, I love the touring. I also love the, you know, the writing, the recording. You know, I like making the posters, doing the podcasts. Like, just the whole, you know, the whole the whole thing of it. I'm just up for real. And it's just like, long may it continue. Amen. Well, there's not a lot to not like, is there? Like, if you are a, a creative and a hustler, and especially when it's yours and you own it, there's something that I think a bit of pride and... Mm satisfaction comes with that as well I, I definitely you... i think i take more pride from it now than i have in the past as well i don't know whether that's coming of age or the um i don't know the back catalogue or the bits and bobs but yeah you know it feels feels good ladies and gentlemen well, in you this do, dying world you're amassing quite the in back catalogue at this, this stage we've got this book as well drunk folk stories which is out now um thank you very much for my copy dude i'm going to get you to sign no this before you go and yeah dude congratulations on everything and long may it continue and i will hopefully see you at boomtown yeah perhaps at glastonbury i'm trying to negotiate a deal with a record label that has a stage at both of those festivals where i dj and host said stages so nice. hopefully i can get in on those if not definitely see you for Year number six of the oh, Flogging Molly Salty Dog crazy. Cruise. I had a really good time hanging out with you on that. I've yeah, got a really good picture just, of the pair of us yeah. just on my little DJ decks. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to some more times out yeah, in the Caribbean thanks. Ocean with you, my brother. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, dude. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 